So good morning, church family. Distractions are common, aren't they? Take, for example, basketball. A very common shot is the free throw. And yet, I don't know if there's ever been a time when you have been tried to be distracted while shooting a free throw. For me, I grew up playing the game called 21. And uh, to get to 21, uh, it involved free throw shots. And the rule on the playground was you could do almost anything but touch the shooter. Anything else would go. And that meant people were dancing, people were doing crazy yoga poses, shouting things, saying things, clapping in your face as long as they didn't touch you. Try to distract you from that good work of shooting a free throw. I was inspired by Arizona State University. They took this concept to a whole new, new level. In fact, they created what's called the curtain of distraction. Now, let me tell you how it works. During the whole game, it's closed. But when the opponent is on the free throw line facing the curtain of distraction, they open the curtain to reveal any number of crazy things. Elvis can come, unicorns, clowns, which are scary nowadays with it, Sharknado happening. Um, I like this one. I think I'd be distracted by that. And most famously, they had an alumni uh, that, that you might know named Michael Phelps who came out of the curtain of distraction with all his gold medals and a Speedo. That would be distracting. And what they found is that this actually works. Free throw percentage is down 10% because of the curtain of distraction. And isn't that the case, that when it comes to life, here's our first takeaway, that distractions are a hindrance to getting a good work done. That, that could be the free throw. That could also be grocery shopping. Uh, let's say uh, you're going to the grocery store just to pick up some eggs. But on your way in, in order to get to the egg section, you see the things right there in the front, usually sugary items or things that are junk food, and now you want some of them. And then you get through the other aisles and, oh, I forgot about this. And then before long, you forget, why am I in the grocery? Why am I here? Oh, yeah, eggs. Or, or even so, have you ever gone to a store, left with a whole bunch of things, but never got the thing you went there for? And went, yeah. This is a life of distraction. Another thing that can happen is you're at home. You have one thing to do. Let's say you want to find the scissors to cut something out. But in the meantime, you, you see the kitchen, you get caught up with all the snacks, and then you're left wondering, what was I doing now? We've all been there. Distractions are a hindrance to getting a good work done. Now, during this series, we're focusing on the good work that Amazing Love wants to do together that we're together trying to find those who don't know Jesus, to, to reach the lost with his love so that they might know just how good he is. And we've been focusing on a couple things that are going to help us do that. We've been saying that in, invitation is, is so critical. And so that's why we love having an Oktoberfest where people can come and we can invite, or a parade, um, or, or, or our movie night where we could just continue to invite people. Um, it's just been an awesome opportunity with laser focus to continue to invite. Another thing we've said is that we're going to create a great weekend experience. And so people have filled out those axes, and, and there's still axes available to get involved in the great work we do on a Sunday together. So if someone's new here, they're like, wow, this is a great place to be. That's what we do with laser focus to continue to reach those who might not be connected to their Savior. So what's true of life is true of a church, that we also don't want to be hindered by distractions. We know what we're going to be about. 
But what's interesting about distractions is they're not just a hindrance. At times, it can even be dangerous. Let's talk about driving. Some of you might know Illinois has implemented a new law that if you're found texting, uh, if you're found on your phone more than one touch, I believe it is, uh, they can pull you over and they can fine you. I won't ask how many of those fines have actually been given out. We will keep that to ourselves. Um, but, but this is the, the new thing. Because we have recognized that when people are distracted, when they're, you know, on their cell phone, or maybe you've seen them on the interstate, maybe it was you, I don't know, um, that that can lead to bad driving. Never forget when my dad was actually, he's, he's okay, but he was in an accident because someone was on their cell phone and uh, totaled a car. It was bad, right? So distractions can actually be dangerous. Well, this is also true for our faith life. And by the way, if you're wondering, I do have a little bit of a cold. Can you, can you tell? So it's not just like I'm a, you're going through a stage or something, but I have a bit of a cold. We're, we're doing okay. Um, but anyway, uh, this is not my more normal voice. But uh, when we talk about the faith life, you think of what it is to try to follow Jesus in our fast-paced society. We have distractions galore, right? We have kids, and then kids have activities, and then we have uh, reasons to get them to their activities, and, and that could be a lot of our life. Work hours since the Great Recession. The Great Recession changed things. Now they want to do more things with less people, and guess who those people are, Right? And so now the hours just increase, and, and this is what it is. And I mean, not only that, but, but then we have opportunities to do, do many things. I mean, in Chicago, what great concert couldn't you see? Uh, what, what great game couldn't you go to? So we're distracted all the time. And it's dangerous. So dangerous, it reminds me of a parable that Jesus told. And this parable sticks with me because it was the first sermon I ever preached. It was a parable of a king in a palace who's throwing a party and wants you to go. Now, just on that basis alone, do you want to go to a king's palace party? Sign me up, right? Party animal right here. It's going to be a good time. And any logical person would say, yeah, I want to go to the king's palace party, which was a picture of heaven. But the parable goes on, and maybe you've heard it. He sends out the messengers with this invitation, and look at what the response is. They all alike began to make excuses. They said, you know what, I just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. I got to work. Work, you know, it's, it's a big thing. Another person said, I just got married. Romance, you know, just got engaged, right? Uh, another person said, I bought a yoke of oxen. Hobby, got to do it. Let's go, right? And because of this, they missed Heaven for work. Now, just from a logical standpoint, why would you ever make that trade? No one would. But this is the lives we're living. They're lives filled with so much that we can be distracted from what truly matters. So another thing we know is this, that distracted faith is dangerous because it can lead you to missing the prize. The greatest prize, the king's palace party, I want to be there. Which is why, friends, I, I don't know if you've ever been recentered when we've come to this place. That's what the Spirit does in our hearts. He realigns, he recenters, he says, this is what matters. This is the one thing needful to focus on Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. And this is why it's so good to be with you today. So we're in a series called The Good Work, and we've been looking at the man, Nehemiah. 
And I want to catch you up if it's your first time with us during this series. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in one of the greatest kingdoms, the kingdom of Babylon. And he gave up a comfy position to do a very noble calling, which was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now this was important because it spoke of the prominence of God's people, and it spoke of the place where the Messiah would be born, that region. So it needed to be done, and Nehemiah gives up again his comfy position to do the noble work. We've seen God's hand of blessing as he uh, gave Artaxerxes um, uh, safe passage and also timber through Artaxerxes. We've also seen him go through um, some opposition. Well, today we see him go through distraction. And uh, we're going to get into Nehemiah chapter 6. One thing we love to do is to recognize that God is actually speaking to us through these words. And so to recognize that, I'm going to invite you to please stand in these moments as we hear his word. So Nehemiah chapter 6 says, When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was with an unsealed letter in which was written, This is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. Those are serious accusations. But he just said, I I sent this reply, Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. I love that response. We'll talk about it. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. A man of prayer praying once again. Awesome, awesome as he deals with these distracting messages. Could you turn to the person next to you and just simply tell them, just say no. Just say no. No, you may be seated. Do you remember that campaign? I think Nancy Reagan? Just say no? Yeah, just say no. Do I have any Michael Jordan fans? Michael Jordan fans in the building? Awesome. So I, for my money, I believe that he is the greatest of all time. I will not be convinced otherwise. I, I know LeBron is a thing, but, but I think Michael Jordan. In fact, uh, for the next generation, one of the things they're really missing is what it was like to watch the Bulls in the 90s. Um, your life would be better if you go back and watch the Bulls in the 90s. Uh, They won six national championships at that time, and there was never a guy more clutch than Jordan. A lot of people can be talented, but when it comes to clutch, that's Jordan. But go back with me a little bit, and does anyone remember when Jordan was dressed like this? Right. So Jordan, who had just won three NBA titles, went to play minor league baseball for the Barons. Now, an ESPN article just came out about this experience, and Tony Francona, who's a, a good GM for, or manager for baseball, said that he had the ability, that Jordan, if he wanted to, with his work ethic, his aptitude, his ability, he could have made it long term. 
In fact, for a while, uh, he, he dressed in the South Side apparel, uh, right? And, and this was Jordan's thing. But I don't know about you. To me, that's a distracted man. Baseball's not your thing, Jordan. You're going to fly. Like Mike, you're going to have that logo of you dunking. That's Jordan. And so Jordan, after his distraction, went back to the Bulls and won three more NBA titles. That, to me, is a good decision. Avoid distraction. Stick to your thing. Where am I going with this? Do you hear the lesson? <clears throat> Nehemiah knows what he's about. I am a wall builder. I am not um, an emissary trying to be a peacemaker. I'm not trying to get your approval. I am a wall maker, and that's it. But he's distracted by a different offer. Uh, for example, he hears this message. Sanballat sends, come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh now, first of all, never go to a place called Ono, oh Right? So this is easy maybe for Nehemiah, and this is also his response, oh no, I will not go to oh no, right? Um, but, but he knows um, in this thing that he cannot build the wall and be in oh no at the same time. You can't be in two places at the same time, right? And maybe you recognize that about yourself. You maybe even said that to some people, can't be in two places at once, I'm doing this thing. And so Nehemiah sends back this reply, I'm carrying on a great project, cannot go down. Why should the work stop? He knows the work would have to stop if he goes, right? That's going to happen. If I go, this stops while I leave it and go to you. And so one of the most profound things we learn is, is this takeaway, that you cannot say yes to something without saying no to something else. You found that to be true? You cannot say yes to something without saying no to something else. Jim Carrey, I remember that yes movie. He was saying yes to everything. What he said no to was sleep, right? Could not be sustained. You cannot say yes and no. And, and how does this work in our own lives? Well, let's just say the good work you want to accomplish is being there for your family, is having a bunch of quality time with the kids, if you say yes to overtime, and if you say yes to 60-plus hours, you are, regardless of where your heart is, saying no to that. It can't go both ways. There's no way that that happens. Or with money. Let's say my good work is I want to save money. If I say yes to every purchase and yes to uh, budgeting my, my, my monetary life so thin, I cannot say also yes to saving money. That will not happen. You will either be a great purchaser or you will be a great saver. You can't say yes and no at the same time. Or what it is to live for God. Sometimes I, I have a dichotomy where I can either say yes to God's will, but saying yes to God's will will be saying no to a certain sin. And saying yes to a sin will be saying no to God's will. Or what it is to focus primarily on Jesus Christ and living for him. I cannot say yes to having God as my primary pursuit without saying no to certain things that would get in the way of it. If he wants to be my primary pursuit, whether it be in worship life, in Bible study, in reading the Bible, in sharing it, I'm going to have to say no to other things that are less than. And Paul said this. 
Paul said, when it comes to my life, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I got to press on. There's one prize. It's better than every other prize. And I'm going for it. And so in our time together, I, I just wondered, spiritually speaking, because this is what our focus is, is there any way your life would look different if you pursue God primarily? Maybe not. Maybe so. I think it's good to consider these things. Because our, our life is on a path. It's leading somewhere. And we cannot say yes to everything without saying no to something else. You know, this principle worked early on in my ministry. Early on in ministry, and it's a privilege to be a pastor. I recognize that there are so many great opportunities of what to do with my time. And there are opportunities at one point to write a book, one time to be on a mission board, one time to do some videos. Opportunities galore. But what I recognize is I could not say yes to everything without saying no to something else. How it works in my own schedule is I've always wanted a Sunday uh, sermon to be like that best Easter sermon. Do you know what I'm talking about? You ever been to a worship service where like that Easter sermon was it, Right? And I'm like, what if we had a church where it wasn't just once a year, but it was every Sunday that I tried to have a sermon that was like when I fill up my Slurpee and I put the cap on the top because I'm going to get everything that I can possibly get in my Slurpee. What if we had sermons like that? Well, it means that I'd have to say no to certain things. For example, in my routine, Friday is completely blocked out just for the writing portion of a sermon. And it means I have to say no to meetings. I have to say no to the lesser things in order to focus on the thing that I believe truly matters and will be impactful for everyone else. There's no other way to do it because I've had the weeks otherwise. What about your life? Where is this principle coming home? Where do you need to apply it? Maybe in your house, in your lifestyle, or in your walk with God. You know, one of the things I recognize by even talking about this is how many times I've gotten it wrong. See, see, what I believe is that you probably know what primary focuses should be. I don't think it's a head knowledge thing. It's kind of like eating right and exercise. We know these things. It's not a head knowledge thing, but there's something that hinders. And this is a recognition that we are all dealing with a sinful nature. We're all dealing with, with something that wants to say yes to sin and, and no to God all the time. And so what's great to do in these moments is to come together before God and just humbly submit, God, I don't have it all together. <laughs> I am a work in progress, God. I need your forgiveness once again for not making primary pursuits primary. Would you admit the same? And then how awesome to know there is a Savior. How awesome to know that he has covered each and every one of our sins and mistakes. Each and every time that we didn't do it right. But could I show you also his example? See, Jesus had to be very focused in order to accomplish salvation. And Jesus knew that his life would culminate in the cross. And he was telling his disciples a few times... And there was one time where Peter tried to get the, the focus away from the cross. And I want to share with you this dialogue, what happened. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, 
this cross thing, this death thing. It'll never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus, who loved Peter, knew that in this moment he had to call him out. You're not right and you are not helpful for what I'm set out to do. That I cannot stay with you and be an earthly king when I'm supposed to be the eternal king and savior. I cannot say yes to earthly king because that will mean saying no to eternal king. I cannot say yes to not dying without saying no to salvation for any and all who call on my name. But friends, he said yes to the cross. And because of that, we can say yes to peace and no to guilt. You can't live in both of them at the same time. We can say yes to freedom and no to bondage. You can't live in both of them at the same time. We can say yes to life and the life that is truly life and no to death because God has conquered it. How awesome. But there's more to learn from Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah knew this principle, but Nehemiah also had some confidence. He had a swagger about him. He knew he was in the right. In fact, Nehemiah in this lesson kind of reminds me of one of my favorite characters from TV. Um, his name is Sheldon Cooper. So The Big Bang Theory, one of the longest running shows, um, and if you've ever uh, seen a TV uh, episode with Sheldon on it, you, you can pick up on his character. Uh, certain things, he, he says, you're wrong, but please tell me what you think anyway. He, he's got this idea that he's just always in the right. Um, he knows where to sit, he knows roommate agreements, all of these things. Um, another phrase, don't you think that if I were wrong, I'd know it, right? Uh, confidence, confidence. I see the same thing in Nehemiah this morning. So he has some messages coming his way. Four times they came out him. And the last time, they, they had some accusations saying, you're trying to lead a revolt, and you're also trying to be king. But consider the simple response from Nehemiah. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're making it up out of your head. You're wrong. I'm right. I know it. And it's just amazing. And I was trying to deduce, how does Nehemiah get to such a bold assertion, Right? And here's what I've deduced, an next principle, that when you're in the right, there's no reason to waver. If you know you're on the right path, which Nehemiah knew, Nehemiah knew this was not about his glory. This was about God's glory. This was not about his plan. It was about God's plan of redeeming Jerusalem, sending his Savior to that area. And because he was convinced he's in the right, he doesn't have a reason to be insecure. Now imagine if Nehemiah did have ulterior motives. If Nehemiah did presume to someday be king or to get some glory, maybe he would have been insecure and even been enticed by this offer. So let's meet. I better clear that up. But we see no insecurity because I don't believe he has mixed motives. It reminds me of a proverb. There's a proverb that says, the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And I want to get to a point where we can talk about what it is to have righteous swagger. Our president referred to that on Vision Sunday. And I, I would love to have a righteous swagger, but how do we get there? Well, first of all, we need to talk about this first line. The wicked flee, though no one pursues. 
This is someone who's so insecure because they know they're wrong, maybe their conscience is convicting them, that even though they're not convicted, they're not caught yet, they just continually live on edge, like walking on eggshells, right? Because they don't know when it's all going to catch up, even though they know they're in the wrong. What this kind of reminds me of is Bernie Madoff and the Ponzi schemes. And what did we hear about those that were involved? Unfortunately, some of them took their own lives because they knew, oh, this is about to catch up, right? Lance Armstrong, right? Uh, he probably felt that way, but before the doping became true that he was on it, he was probably insecure. Most recently, and this is a heartbreaking story, Jeffrey Epstein. What do we know there? Jeffrey Epstein, who is accused of some awful things with minors, who has taken his life. Why? Not because he's been convicted, just because he's going to be on trial. Now, what is he doing? Is he not fleeing, even though he's not yet caught? How might this speak to us? I think the continual process of repentance needs to be just that, continual. For when we repent, think of what happens. Number one, we come out of hiding. If we were ever tempted to believe I could live without God knowing, repentance doesn't allow me to do that. Repentance simply says, God, you see, I know you see, I'm sorry. But repentance also says, I'm forgiven. I'm at peace, which is the best part of repentance. The cross of Jesus covers me. I am not going to live insecure anymore. I'm not going to live unworthy or unloved. I'm at peace to the cross. But then repentance also says, I don't want to do that anymore. Let's clear that up. Let's get off that path. And when someone is continually going through this process, I believe there's a boldness that one can have. Knowing that you're at peace, knowing that you're not continuing in a path that would make you insecure. And so the righteous are as bold as a lion. I know I'm at peace. I know I'm in the right path. And I don't know if you've ever met someone like this. I have a friend named Dan Stinnett. My wife knows Dan. Dan is very bold in not only sharing the faith, but if you're a Christian because he loves you, he'll also confront you. He's very bold in doing that. But Dan does not waver because he has your best intentions in mind. He loves you. He's prayed up about it. And he's bold. And what I believe is that we can be the same. What I believe is this next point. That boldness is the byproduct of a repentant believer seeking only God's will. Repentant, I'm at peace. I know I'm not in the wrong path. I have no reason to be insecure. And only God's will. That when I'm doing it, I don't have mixed motivations that would make me insecure. For example, um, if, if I'm generous, you know, I'm not generous in order to get something from God. I give you 10, you give me 100, I'm waiting, God. I'm just generous because it's all yours anyway, and that's a good thing to do. When I share my faith, I'm not doing it to make a name for myself. I'm doing it because there are people in darkness and I have the light. It's just the right thing to do. I can be bold about it. When I love someone who's hurting, who's in need, I can go do that and just say, that's the right thing to do. I don't care what I, I get from it. I don't care what they say about me. That's just the right thing to do. I can be bold. 
How awesome if God continues to spur us on in this way. But there's another thing that Nehemiah had going for him. And that was determination. Four times the messenger came. The fifth time it got worse. And so every time he has to hit his nose to the grindstone and say, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going there. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. He's going about it. And so what I believe is that you need a heart of determination, which will leave no room for distraction. And to talk about determination, I want to bring up a man that you might know. His name is Bear Grylls. Bear Grylls is a famous survivalist, uh, someone who teaches uh, celebrities how to survive on their own. I remember uh, one time uh, him going with Drew Brees out in a TV show and teaching them how to survive, an uh, extremist. But Bear Grylls had to learn determination firsthand. Early on in his life, he was in a freefall accident where his parachute didn't open the whole way, so he landed on the ground. He didn't die, but he broke his back. And while he was in the hospital, his father sent him a picture of Mount Everest and climbers to Mount Everest. And when he saw that picture, he got determined. He got determined to walk again, and he got determined to climb and be one of those climbers on the top of Mount Everest. It was 18 months after he broke his back that he took this picture. There is Bear Grylls as a young man on the top of Mount Everest. The determination had to have taken day after day to get to a point where he not only could walk again, but do something of this magnitude is just amazing. The story goes that some days he would spend 10 hours in rehabilitation. Now, some of you have done rehab, right? Can you imagine just 10 hours going at it over and over and over to get better? This is a determined man. And so what he, he shared uh, with others is how to stay determined as a survivalist is this, that survival can be summed up in three words, never give up. That's the heart of it. Just keep on trying. Now, I think that's so important for us to hear as Christians. And here's why. I believe there are always reasons to give up. There are reasons that we create. There are reasons that I think the devil whispers in our ear. There are legitimate reasons. There are non-legitimate reasons. But we got reasons to give up, especially when a good work becomes hard, when we face either opposition or distraction. It's easy to clock out and just say, uh-uh, not anymore. But friends, it's worth it. This is much more than climbing Mount Everest. This is shaping eternity as we share the eternal Savior. This is the most important work that any people of any time could ever be up to. To share Jesus, the author of life, the light of the world who shines light into dark places and brings people out of darkness into his wonderful light. There is absolutely nothing better than this good work. So what can I tell you? Never give up. It's worth it. In fact, the author of the Hebrews, he put it this way. He said, so let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's throw off everything. So I wonder where this lands with some of you. I wonder if there are any families who as the school year begins, the activities creep up, might have to have a family huddle. <laughs> 
and say, are we about the right things? Are we cognizant of what our yeses are meaning for our noes and our noes are meaning for our yeses? That'd be a good family discussion. Maybe there's some Christians who've kind of clocked out of trying for the Lord. And no one else would know it, only your heart would know. We're like, it was hard, it was too much, I'm just clocking out. And maybe by the Spirit of God, you just need to hear it's worth it, don't give up. Eternity's at stake. Maybe God is just simply calling us to repent once again. So we can have the glory of peace and a clear conscience and walk out today as children of God with a righteous way because I am complete. Not because of me, but because of the cross that I just saw. And maybe that's enough. But may the Spirit lead you into wisdom of what to do with this message and then empower you to actually do it. Amen.